Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Greg Spillane, the CEO of Fancy, a unique social commerce platform to discover, share, and buy amazing products. Fancy was started in 2009 and at one point in time had a valuation of around a billion dollars. Greg joined in early 2019 to become CEO and kind of enact the turnaround of Fancy, and they're actually raising funds right now on WeFunder. Uh, The campaign actually will close very, very soon, depending on when you're listening to it. You can find more at wefunder.com slash fancy. You can also find out more about Fancy at fancy.com. In this episode, we go through really what Fancy is, what the platform is that they have created, why Greg decided to join Fancy and the company that was struggling at the time, the business model behind them, how Fancy goes about curating brands on their platform, the importance of building trust within the platform, why they decide to go the crowdfunding route in the first place, and kind of what their customer acquisition strategy is, some of the numbers around the traction with Fancy today, how Greg has gone about building the team, especially when he went through that transition period, just kind of getting started, and finally wrapping up with why he decided to get an MBA from USC. That and much more in this episode. As always, these show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure give clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper, to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com, and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Without further ado... Here is Greg Spillane, the CEO of Fancy. Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, appreciate it. I'm uh, really excited to speak with you. Yes, appreciate you taking the time. And with Fancy, always like to give an overview. What are you guys doing at, at Fancy? What's this company? Well, you know, Fancy is a, a social marketplace. Uh, you know, we've been around since 2009. Actually, is when the company was founded. So I, I you know, I'm the CEO of the company. I, I did not found the company, um, and really, in a lot of ways, the founders were were ahead of their time. And you know, I, I, I think there was a, there was a time where you know, Fancy could have you know truly, honestly, been Instagram. I, I think that many of the things that Instagram eventually grew into, you know, Fancy was doing, um, you know, very early on in regards to uh, you know, people using it as a network to share and, and show people, um, you know, more product focused, but but things that uh, they liked and they thought that were really cool and reflected their own personalities. And, um, you know, and, and with the roots and social, you know, it was it was much uh, it was much more of an inspirational platform or even an aspirational platform. And then, um, you know, evolved into commerce, uh, you know, in, in 2013 and, and sort of evolved. And, you know, there were a couple of missteps along the way, uh, mostly with just financial management. I mean, it's a company that, uh, you know, has been VC back from the very beginning, you know, has raised well over a hundred million dollars in venture capital, a lot of really high profile investors involved from the beginning from, you know, Jack Dorsey is one of the angel investors and, you know, a board member to Andreessen Horowitz. And and with that money, you know, they, they were able to build a, a, you know, a big user base and a great technology platform. And, um, you know, and, and as I took over, what it was really about for us was, um, you know, building upon our social roots as being a place to, you know, search and discover and be inspired to find just amazing products uh, and just professionalize the the experience a little bit more from a, from a shopping perspective and create a, a unified 
um, you know, safe shopping experience for people to buy and, and find, you know, amazing brands and, and, and purposeful brands, brands that have stories behind them, whether it's a charitable aspect or whether it's a sustainability aspect or, or whatever it is, but things that reflect people's own personal values. And um, that's what we're doing today, you know, fancy.com, you know, on web. And then we have uh, you know, keep very um, engaging mobile apps that can download it in Android and iOS. And, uh, you know, the company's turned around. We're, we're, we're really poised well for growth and things have, have gone great over the last, you know, six to eight months. That's awesome. And such a crazy story. I think I look back at that and doing the research, I was like, well, there's a lot to dive into on that. But one of the things I'm wondering about with you personally, why did you decide to, to join Fancy? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It was, uh, <laughs> it, it, I wouldn't say grudgingly is the right word. <laughs> But, you know, I, you know, Fancy's a New York based company. I mean, the company was, you know, based out of, uh, you know, New York City. I'm based in California. Uh, you know, the thought and idea of taking over an, an e-commerce platform when I was first approached with this, you know, was, was definitely something I didn't think, you know, was going to work out. I, you know, I didn't want to really take my family to New York, but uh, an investor, one of the board members who I've, you know, had a long working relationship with, I, you know, somehow or another have kind of turned into this turnaround guy where I've, I've been brought into, you know, multiple companies that, you know, have traction and have an opportunity, but there's been a couple of missteps along the way. And it's, you know, hey, how do we, you know, find traction? How do we find market fit? How do we, you know, get this thing to profitability? Um, and one of the investors I've worked with in the past, and he's kind of brought me into several of his portfolio companies, asked me to fly out to New York as just kind of a favor to take a look at this. And I, I, I decided that I would, and I came out and was just blown away by really honestly what I saw. Uh, and, and what I saw was just low hanging fruit everywhere, like untapped yeah. opportunity, you know, it was just, um, you know, the, the positioning just made so much sense. Uh, there was just this great technology platform that was in place. It was all proprietary. It had been built over these years, this amazing engineering team that was, you know, supporting it. And, um, and a brand and, and a user base and a fan base and all these different types of things. And, you know, I could kind of immediately see where it needed to go and how we could get there. And, uh, you know, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. So I, I spent, <laughs> I spent about, a, you know, no exaggeration. You know, I, I think from February, 2019 through December, I was in New York like 30 weeks. Um, so, you know, got my, uh, my platinum, you know, diamond, uh, rallying with, with Delta and, and you know, know New York really, really well over that period of time, but, um, really happy that I, I did take the opportunity and, uh, it's been an amazing, amazing ride so far. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm curious about, cause I know other entrepreneurs have probably heard about this, how the founders of a company aren't always the people who take it to the next level or take it to IPO or continue on for the life, you know, life of a company that doesn't happen all the time. Oftentimes there are some people who are brought in, the CEO who's brought in, et cetera, but we don't really hear about what that is, is like in terms of like the process after. So for you, in terms of being brought in, once you decide to, to take that you know leap and join fancy, you know, what were some of the things you looked at, and you said there's a lot of low hanging fruit. What were some of the things you're looking at to kind of turn the ship around per se? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I, and I think that's true. Um, you know, it takes a special kind of person and I, I have, um, all the respect in the world for, for entrepreneurs. I, you know, I, I founded the company early in my career and, and, you know, bootstrapped it and built it up and it's unbelievably hard. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and in a lot of ways, it is a young man's game, right? Because, you know, when you do get a little farther in your career, you know, living on top ramen and struggling <laughs> to just, you know, make any money at all is really difficult to do. So, you know, I, I even with the fancy team and the founders of this company, I mean, they, they did so much to, to build the foundation that, you know, allowed me to come in and, you know, uh, you know, there's many things that they did I would never have been able to do, but you know, as you can imagine, I think that the the skill sets to sort of take a concept and and have that ability to get off the ground isn't always necessarily the skill set necessary to sort of like build a sustainable process based business. And, and yeah, that's a that's a lot of you know what I've done. I mean, when I said low hanging fruit, um, you know, there was just. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I've learned, too, is never – it's really easy to criticize, especially when you come into a new company and point at all the things and all the mistakes. And why are we doing this? And this makes no sense. But 
you know, what I've learned is, you know, unless you were in that person, that leader's seat at that time, it's really difficult to understand why that decision was made. And, you know, fancy had kind of morphed and evolved and we had a brick and mortar, you know, uh, presence and we were doing, you know, sort of offline pop-ups and we were doing marketing services and we were trying to resell our software. And, you know, then we had like the core, you know, fancy commerce business. And then we even had products that we were selling on fancy where we didn't necessarily have a relationship with the sellers. And we had people buying products like offline on a real-time basis and then drop. <laughs> I mean, it was sort of insanity, right? And, yeah. Uh, that that's where like the low hanging fruits came in. You just quickly were able to go, listen, this is a digital business. We need to get back to being digitally native. We're spending all this money in these different areas that aren't scalable. You know, it was just kind of making some tough decisions, closing some things down and refocusing the business back on, you know, what fancy is at its core. And it's a digital destination for people to, you know, discover, shop and share amazing products. And um, so, you know, you got to win over the team and the team's a big component of this. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time working with the team that was in place and getting to know who was there and, you know, taking their input in and what was going right and you know, what were things and opportunities to improve. And, uh, you know, and then, and we brought in people from the outside where there were gaps. Uh, you know, I'm really proud of the team that, that I've built and, you know, the team that we have in place today. So, you know, those were, you know, I don't say they were easy and, and low hanging fruit probably underestimates like the, the heavy lifting that was involved, but you could quickly see that there was a huge opportunity in place once you kind of remove some of the pieces of rubble that were surrounded. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think it's clear to understand. Like, It's not that it was, like you said, easy in terms of low-hanging fruit, but it, but clear in terms of what the things were you could do. Like that, that makes a lot of sense of like, oh, there's certain things that we can do in this business to right the wrongs per se. And like you said, it's not a knock on the founders because there are so many different things they're dealing with, especially when starting a company and you don't know all the reasons why they made all of those decisions. And I actually joined a company when uh, when I joined Clark Toys, they're a company that had been around for, oh, I think over a decade at that point in time. And there's so many things I looked at, I was like, this is an opportunity, this is an opportunity because you know they just operate in a certain way to survive in the beginning. And then you evolve as you, as you go on to get to that next stage. And uh, I think it's important just to kind of uh, underline and kind of highlight that point as well. And and then take me through then today, understanding the things you kind of just mentioned with that. What is the business model today behind Fancy? Yeah, so our, our core business model is uh, we operate as a, a two-sided marketplace. So, um, you know, we uh, do not carry inventory at this point. Um, you know, we partner with, with mostly brands, uh, direct-to-consumer brands. We're not necessarily like a an Etsy or an eBay where anybody can sell on our platform. Like we do, um, you know, take a lot of uh, time to really curate the brands we work with. We vet them out. We have a, a, a very strict um, protocol of who will allow to sell on our platform. And that's really to protect our, our um, buyers. But, you know, ultimately what we do is we provide the technology. Uh, the technology syncs up with whoever our sellers um, existing e-commerce or, or consumer uh, operations are. So we sync up with inventory, we sync up with order management. So it's very seamless um, from, a, from a seller perspective. And then, you know, on the front end, we provide the experience and the community that, that allows, you know, our consumers to, you know, engage with really cool and interesting brands. And, you know, we use some very, um, you know, lifestyle imagery, which is a big com component of things. Um, we've done a lot of really cool things with, uh, you know, personalization and social and liking and sharing and following other people, which really kind of ties into that inspirational aspect of it. But when, you know, a purchase is made, you know, our technology pushes that purchase directly into the seller's um, order management system. So it almost feels native to them. There's no double, yeah. there's no secondary place that they got to check. And then they just go ahead and do fulfillment like they normally would. And, uh, and we take a percentage of the, the transaction. That's uh, It's a much different situation than, than uh, looking like Amazon, it seems like, in terms of how you're operating, uh, which is interesting to see. And one of the things you mentioned there with curating brands, I mean, I would love to hear more about that curation process in terms of how, what are you looking for in brands? How much of it is more of an outreach situation? You want brands on your platform versus them coming to you? I would love to hear more about that, Greg. Yeah, no, it's, it's a mixture of both. Uh, so we, you know, you can you know, go to fancy.com and you can apply to be one of our brands. Uh, we have a link on the bottom of the page, any brands out there that are interested, please reach out to us. 
but we have a pretty strict vetting process. And I would say one out of 50 brands that apply, you know, are accepted. Um, and, uh, you know, we do do a lot of outreach as well. We have a team of people whose job is to, you know, to discover and scour and to find, you know, products and, and, and brands that we, 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 we like. Um, you know, a big part of our value proposition, you know, when you think about social selling is making sure that there's trust involved on the buyer side. And I think yeah. one of the negative things that, you know, you're seeing with like Instagram shopping is Instagram will pretty much let anybody sell anything on Instagram if you're willing to sort of pay, <laughs> you know, yep. Uh, and some of it's anecdotal experience. And I mean, I've even had personally with buying things, but there's, there's also research that supports it is, is actually the shopping experience has been pretty poor. And there's been a lot of issues with quality and fulfillment and reliability. And, you know, that was a problem that we wanted to fix and fancy. So, you know, number one is just making sure that they're, these are real established businesses and that they're going to fulfill and that the products that are delivered are of quality and the shipping times are going to be reliable and you know, they accept returns and, and all those types of things that I think we've expected. Um, but then the second part of it, and this is kind of the softer aspect of it, is, um, you know, we're, we have this thesis that we're moving into like this kind of commoditized world, right? Like, and I think yeah. Amazon is great with those kinds of transactional purchases. You know, you, you need a, you know, I, I bought a pool skimmer the other day, right? And you search for pool skimmer and, you know, 50 different products. <laughs> They're pretty much all the same. If I made yeah. a factory somewhere, they all got kind of like the generic brand names. You find the cheapest version, the five-star reviews, you buy it, it shows up to your house in two days. And, and for stuff like that, it's great. But when it comes to things like fashion, um, home decor, art, um, health and beauty, you know, product, skincare, it's not really how people want to make those purchases. You know, they want to understand who's behind it, who stands behind it. Is there a context? Is there meaning? Is there purpose? You know, if it's, if it's, if it's home decor, or if it's art or it's fashion, it's like, who's the designer? Where is this made? You know, those types of things. So we focus on brands that, 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 you know, are lifestyle brands and that, that have some type of purpose or meaning behind what they're doing. And then we really try to spend time on fancy to tell that story to our consumers so that when they're making a purchase, it's not just a, you know, a product that's going to show up and be delivered and, and have quality, but you know, that they know they feel good about it. If there's a story behind it, it, it aligns with their own personal values, et cetera. And uh, it's just a little bit of a differentiation. I think some of the other shopping experiences that are out there. With that too, with you mentioning that, I mean, how do you look at the the content side of the business and kind of the storytelling behind the products? Like how do you look at it overall and how you kind of use that to help the business grow? Yeah. I mean, look, there's, there's kind of two parts to it. Uh, a lot of the brands we work with, you know, already have their own story or their own purpose or their own meaning. So we, yeah. we do rely a lot on the brands themselves to help us with that. But then, you know, the second part of it and, and a, a component that we're investing heavily in is, is around the community aspect and the influencer side of it and, and bringing guest curators into the mix. You know, these are people who have, you know, relationships with products or designers or manufacturers that, you know, they've brought to the fancy platform, or, you know, we make the connections between, um, you know, the, the influencer, the community with the brands, with the opportunity for them to, uh, interact and then, you know, promote. So there's a lot of social features on our site in regards to the ability to be able to, you know, follow a curator of sorts. And, and, and there's some development stuff that's happening and, and some new features that are going to bring that more to the forefront here in the, in the short term, really before this quarter is even out. Um, but, you know, we believe that's, that's, that's a big component of it is, is, is helping these brands tell their story and getting their brand out. And, and that's why we, we really don't focus on like, you know, if you know the, like the Alibaba world very well, yep. You know, you kind of go online, you can do a search. There's all this stuff that's built. And, and Amazon's, you know, people have built huge businesses on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, and that's not what we want to do. We don't want to be selling products that you can go on Alibaba and buy in bulk for $4 a unit and you can label <laughs> on it. I mean, that, that, that to me is like the world that we don't want to play in. We really want to work with the artisans and the entrepreneurs and the designers that, that are kind of making their own things and there's an originality to it. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things I want to go back to, though, is what you mentioned earlier around, you know, the company early on, I mean, funded by some very notable people, 100 plus million dollars. And now you're on WeFunder and you're raising money through the crowd. How did the idea or how did the kind of genesis of crowdfunding come into play for you guys, Greg? Yeah. So, you know, I've, you know, been kind of in the startup world for a while. So I had a lot of experience raising capital through more traditional methods, you know, accredited investors and you know, VCs and such. And, uh, you know, I was brought in by, you know, a, a, um, a fund, you know, a, a $300 yeah. million dollar venture fund called Sweetwater Capital is the managing partner who ultimately made the introduction to the board. Uh, well, we, you know, as the turnaround was happening, we, we had a determination we needed to raise some capital to, to kind of aid in, in, in some initial growth. So we uh, opened up a uh, $2.5 million convertible note, um, really attractive terms considering, you know, where we were from a maturity perspective, you know, $12 million cap on it, et cetera. And um, we started the raise just as COVID sort of hit. Um, so, you know, if you kind of, go, <laughs> um, you know, uh, late February, early March was not a great time to be raising venture. Capital, no. I can imagine. Um, now, we did have a really supportive board and the board had already committed one and a half million dollars towards the raise. That was at the beginning with the plan that we'd raise that additional million um, from outside investors. Uh, and then what ended up happening is as sort of the outside VC world kind of dried up, uh, I was introduced to WeFunder. I didn't even know that this sort of reg A world lived where, you know, I had always thought crowdfunding was like, I don't know, like Kickstarter. Right? Kickstarter. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, the fact that, you know, you could go out to non-accredited investors, I mean, investments as little as $250. And they're investing in the same, you know, equities that you know these these seasoned funds are investing. It was really, I thought, interesting and cool and, and unique. So, you know, when we looked at it, you know, we 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 saw it, number one as an opportunity to raise capital in an environment that kind of became difficult. Um, but you know, beyond that, I thought that there were some real great benefits to that. I mean, you know, you think about. Um, you know, you want to have customer loyalty and we're going to do that by providing a great service and a reliable service and all those types of things. But the the opportunity to have, you know, our user base actually have like a true vested interest in the success of our company. We just felt like it was such a great marketing opportunity for us to build this like army of, uh, you know, in, evangelists that would, you know, actually feel more than just, you know, hey, we have a vendor kind of customer relationship, but actually like a partner relationship. So that was a, that was a big part of it. That was a, that was an area where we were really excited about is being able to just grow a user base and, and get people involved and, you know, the people who believed in the vision and what we were doing to, you know, not just, um, you know, sort of enjoy us because they like to find product and buy product, but actually feel like that they're invested in the company and, and they can take part in our, our, our growth and success. Yeah, and you're seeing a lot of companies do that now for that exact reason to get that buy-in. And I was actually just talking to to Paul and Jeff from Legion M, which has one of been one of the most kind of mm -hmm. successful fundraise, you know, companies that's fundraised through through crowdfunding. And just to have that, you know, backing from people that want you to succeed, then and have a uh, you know kind of have skin in the game in some sorts uh, with being you know equity crowdfunded, so they actually have equity in the company. It's it's very intriguing. It's a very intriguing model. And I've talked to maybe maybe to 10 people so far, 10 different company founders that have gone this route. And the more I talk to people, the more it's like for many business models, it seems like a great fit to go that route. And obviously there's still going to be venture capital and that route is still going to be a thing, but it does seem more and more in intriguing. And what I'd be curious about too is with, with Fancy, how did you decide that you wanted to go through WeFunder versus maybe other platforms? Because there are other crowdfunding platforms out there, even for equity crowdfunding. How did you choose WeFunder? Yeah, you know, I was introduced to the team uh, and we funded through um, Raptor. Raptor is one of our large investors, board members. Uh, Raptor's uh, Jim Pilata's family office. Jim's an uh, extremely successful you know, businessman, owner of Boston Celtics, the Roma team. I think he just actually sold the stakes in those. But, uh, you know, he made the introduction. Um, I'm not quite sure if they're, they're investors and we funded directly or not, but uh, that really didn't play into it. I, I had my initial conversation with Johnny over there and um, just felt really good about the team, man. They just, yeah. they just got what we were doing. Um, really helpful. 
And uh, yeah, I, it was one of those things where I didn't even feel like I needed to look elsewhere. I just, I felt good about the team there. I was in good hands. They made a lot of great introductions to, you know, kind of the marketing teams that helped me sort of put some of the, the, the pieces together. And, and they've been great. I've, I've never, you know, there, there hasn't been one part of the relationship that I've, I've regretted. I think it's been great. I've made recommendations to a number of different founders and CEOs that this is, this is an avenue definitely worth looking into. And to that point then, Greg, as well, I mean, for other founders who are you know, thinking about crowdfunding, what are some of the things that go into actually, you know, the, the pre-launch of the campaign and getting the campaign set up? Because I know there are other people who are going to be curious about this, who have a business idea or they already kind of have a company and want to raise funding for it. What are some things that in terms of the process of getting set up and also even like the pre-launch type of thing as well? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of moving parts and, um, you know, there's, there's some work involved in regards to, you know, you, you got to create a good video and, and something that's engaging and, you know, put all your content together. Uh, it's not tremendously different than just creating a pitch deck. I mean, it's, it's very much, uh, you know, the same type of information and you got to think of it very similarly. Um, now, we engaged with a marketing firm called Aurora. Uh, which is, uh, you know, founded by a guy named Krishan, Krishan Aurora. And he's probably the, the, the top guy in the, you know, the sort of the crowd equity space. And, and I think what he was able to bring to the table more than anything was relationships with some of the key um, angel or crowdfunding um, resource sites out there. I mean, these are people who, you know, subscribe to, you know, these different platforms. So Angels and Entrepreneurs is, is a good example of that, um, you know, Neil Patel, yeah. That. And he has a, you know, million plus strong user base of people who are highly engaged and are, and are looking for cool up and coming companies. You know, there's a lot of people that, that really enjoy um, investing and angel investing. And I think what, what, you know, WeFunder does is, is it lowers the bar, right? Like a lot of angel investors can't typically get in on a deal with a thousand dollar investment or 250 yeah you know you're talking 50 hundred thousand dollar minimums you got to be accredited all these different types of things and you know what what WeFunder does is it allows individuals to kind of play the vc game and take big bets and and, and get some of these outsized returns but can do it you know obviously without without a lot of that background so um what what we were able to do uh and you know the team there did is you know they helped us obviously build our own profile and make sure that our story resonated uh, and then they helped us um, reach out into the extended networks and tap into the angels and entrepreneurs and the startup huts of the world and startup camps and all these different, um, you know, platforms out there uh, that, you know, reach an audience and, and, and make sure that we have those connections. Quite honestly, without their help, I wouldn't even have known some of these existed and they would have gone untapped. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. That having the expertise from that is, is super helpful. And actually, because like I said, interviewing a number of people who have gone through WeFunder, done crowdfunding, there's a first, you know a few things to know about that can be helpful. I like to hear different people's perspectives who just have different companies and going through this. I think it's helpful for mm -hmm. other founders as well. And and understand that you you know obviously you're fundraising for a reason. And you want to feel growth and everything. What has been kind of the the customer acquisition strategy, the growth strategy for Fancy? You know, 2020 here. Yeah. Uh, so we. You know, when we came on board, one of the the real sort of assets or advantages that we had was this very strong data set and existing user base, which is very unique for a startup. You know, and, yeah. and look, Fancy's uh, we're we're not your traditional WeFunder type of startup. Yeah. <laughs> we're, not, we're not really a startup, right? And then, yeah, you know, especially when you start looking at some of the larger institutional investors behind the company, um, which which I think you know has. You know, some people have kind of been confused by us because of, you know, our, our background. But, you know, one of the things that really excited me, you know, going back to your initial question was, you know, that opportunity that existed. So for Fancy, you know, we just uh, give you some just kind of some data points. You know, we currently have about 2.7 million live installs of the Fancy app. Um, Fancy.com, you know, has been around for a while, has amazing search engine authority. We, you know have several hundred thousand unique visitors a month that end up on fancy through different searches, et cetera. And we've had uh, uh, just over 12 million user accounts created since our inception, right? So this is, you know, a data set that, you know, we could tap into, we can look at reactivating, but we just had organic traffic that was coming through. 
And where, you know, when we looked at things, what we realized is there were just some conversion issues that existed with our, with our traffic. And, you know, when people would come to the site and they were finding things, but, you know, getting them to kind of go through the funnel and check out. So a lot of the focus, you know, from a growth perspective early on was, was getting that conversion funnel right and getting the right products and telling our story the right way and the right partners, et cetera, so that we just can up the conversion of the existing traffic that we were getting, right? I mean, you, you can easily double, triple revenue by just small incremental improvements to conversion rates. And then yeah. the second component of that was the reactivation of, of previous users. And, you know, we spent a lot of time and reaching back out and rebuilding up our relationship with past fancy users, people who've made purchases in the past. And there's a number of different things we're, we're sort of running behind the scenes on, on how that works as well. But much of our initial growth and, and sort of like growth that we've been, you know, experiencing to this point um, has been done with minimal investment in acquiring new customers, which is really nice. And and really attractive. Now this quarter is going to be like the first quarter that we're really going to kind of ramp up our paid ads. And, you know, we're going to go through some of the traditional type of things and, 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 and social and, uh, um, you know, paid search, et cetera. But, you know, a big part of our long-term strategy is really around, you know, tapping into our own internal um, social side, building upon our influencer network, building upon our existing user base and looking for opportunities to, 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 to grow through, you know, virality versus just pure, you know, sort of straightforward paid acquisition. Yeah. And being creative on that side of things on how you're acquiring customers. I mean, that's how you can get an edge, right? I mean, if finding the ways that are beyond just the typical channels and not to say that typical channels like Facebook, Instagram are, aren't great because that clearly they work. That's why so many people use them. But if you can have an advantage in some capacity and how you acquire customers, it helps a ton. And uh, you don't have to share all the details necessarily, but I'd be really curious to hear more about, you know, some of the things you're doing to kind of shore up the conversions, you know, always kind of think of other entrepreneurs out there who are trying to improve their businesses. Any Anything in particular on that side or anything on the, the reactivation as well of like past users? Yeah. I mean, you know, for us, uh, there were a number of areas that, you know, maybe sound like low hanging fruit, but to actually execute on in the back background were, were not trivial tasks. So some of the challenges we had as being a marketplace is um, inconsistencies in regards to shipping times, uh, ship from origin, shipping costs, right? Because, you know, you're, you're dealing with, you know, thousands of merchants and some, yeah. and, you know, they all have kind of their own way of shipping. So we had a lot of issues where, you know, products in some cases were being shipped from, you know, Asia or different parts of the world. And, you know, someone would get to checkout and it would be 28 days to receive it. <laughs> You know, you had multiple products in cart, which our technology enabled, but, you know, if all of them charged $10 a ship and you got the checkout and, you know, you had you know, $44 for shipping on a you know $125 order, you know, those are the kind of things you're going to get. You're going to just have abandoned carts. And I mean, our data was just like off the charts, the amount of abandoned carts we had with, with high shipping costs, long shipping times, et cetera. So we did a lot of work on the back end standardizing that. And um, putting in the, the controls, you know, number one, to be able to create a sort of unified um, shipping cost. And now we're in a situation where it's, it's straightforward. It's $5 flat rate shipping on all orders, um, free shipping on any order over $89. And, you know, the infrastructure to support that on the back end was a tremendous lift. And, and you know, I give kudos to my team for being able to put that in place. Like that was, that was a big component of it up front. And then second, and this is where we continue to build upon, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's creating that context around the product and about the brand. And, yeah. Um, you know, helping uh, tell that story. We've, we've recently implemented a whole badge system, um, you know, so people can understand, is this product handmade? Is this product from, a, you know, maybe a Black-owned business? Is there a sustainability aspect to this? Is there a, uh, a charitable aspect behind this, right? And... Um, you know, that helps just as people are buying product or making decisions on product, feel better about why they're buying, who they, you know, who they're buying from and, and, and how it applies to themselves. So, you know, those are, you know, a couple of things that we've just recently been putting in place that's really helped with that, that, that conversion side. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing those. And, and one thing I want to go back to as well, I know you talked about this in the very beginning here about when you had to kind of restructure the team a little bit as you were thinking about this turnaround, you know, coming in as CEO, but you have like years and years of experience as a founder and CEO yourself, as well as, you know, a COO. 
on the team building side of things, like what were some of those things, whether it be early on or even as you look at today, like how do you look at building your team at Fancy, the culture behind that? I'd be curious because of all your experience as well. Yeah, I mean, look, the team building uh, and culture is is just such a big deal. Uh, it's so important. Um, gosh, you know, I, I, I think the culture, you know, obviously it starts at the top. Um, but, you know, a big component of that is, is just being clear with what the core values of the company are, who we are, right? And, you know, what we believe in, like with our organization, entrepreneurship is, is a core value to our company. We're looking for entrepreneurs. We're looking for people who can operate in ambiguity. Uh, we're looking for people who are customer centric, you know, people who, um, you know, are, are, are understanding that we are only going to be successful as our users. And our users are both the sellers and the buyers, right? We, we, we operate in that, that marketplace perspective. Um, so, you know, being very clear, having those core values documented, having those in place so that when, you know, you hire people, you bring them on, there's an expectation set, I think is really important. But, you know, when I personally hire people, you know, I, I'm looking for people, um, it's kind of a mixture of things, right? I, 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 I first want to find people who have like kind of horsepower. They, yeah. Like, I, someone's got to be smart. You know, you can kind of talk to people in conversation. You can ask them questions. Like, are they able to, you know, quickly surmise answers? Are they able to sort of like um, come to conclusions based on information put in place? So, you know, that's, that's important. I mean, I think you need to have smart, intelligent people. But, you know, secondly, what I'm looking for is, is, is people that have like a level of scrappiness. And you can see that scrappiness a lot in people's backgrounds and how they moved through their careers and where they came from and how they got to where they got to. And you know, I'll just give you an example. I, I you know, our head of product um, right now, who's been phenomenal. He's just doing such a great job professionalizing our product development team and so many cool features coming out. Um, you know, he, he, his background was in advanced mathematics. He graduated from UCLA in <laughs> advanced mathematics. And he started his career as an engineer, but in his mid twenties, he made a decision that he wanted to become a Navy SEAL. Wow! And he went through the pro the the program and you know buds and the whole bit, and he graduated and he he was a Navy SEAL. He spent you know I think six years in the military as a Navy SEAL and in the intelligence side of things, and then you know got out and you know then he went on to Twitter and he spent some time at Airbnb and and, and some of those types of companies, but like. It was that like that guy that was willing to like move from his you know background in mathematics and was just like you know what I'm going to be a Navy SEAL was able to do all the work and go through the efforts and you know we know how difficult that is to get through that yeah and you know uh, move back into the professional life it's like that's the kind of guy I have to have on my team right yeah because, you know that person's not going to not be successful <laughs> and and those are the type of people I look to recruit and I look to hire and then. Look, you got to give them guidance and you got to give them direction, but you also kind of got to stay out of their way a little bit and, and, and give them room to move. Okay, we got to take a step back here, Greg. You hired a UCLA guy on your team? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. I know. You know wow. And you call yourself a Trojan, Greg. Oh, I'm just kidding. I had to, had to say it. I had to give a shout out uh, on that side of things as well. Uh, it's so funny how that pops up. I had someone actually recently I interviewed, another founder who uh, mentioned after the show, he's like, wait a minute, you're a Trojan? I'm like, yeah. I gave me a lot of crap for that as well. Um, I think the things you mentioned there around the, the team building, though, it is so important. That's what a lot of CEOs, I and mean, that's what you focus on, typically hiring, firing, fundraising, and sales. You know, like that's that's the main things as a CEO. So it is kind of so important to understand that and understand what you're looking for from the team and having those values established so you can figure out who to bring on board. Uh, I think that's really important. And I, th I actually interviewed another, a Navy SEAL recently, Sean Matson from Matbach, and there, I mean, I would hire a Navy SEAL in a heartbeat. I mean, just the amount of like drive and mental toughness and everything around it. It's like you just assume they're gonna like they're gonna find a way to make things work. And they also are used to working with with teams, obviously, uh, constantly. And so, uh, definitely, just a shout out to them as well in terms of people to hire and as well as the team in terms of like kind of taking things back from from that to you like how do you invest in yourself as a ceo to make sure you're kind of improving uh making sure you're taking care of yourself greg oh man um it's a great question and you know i mean there's things that i do that have just been part of my everyday life for a really long time that that i i find a way to make time for them i mean 
you know, number one, I think family and friends is just from a mental perspective. You know, you, you know, it's really easy to get so married and so obsessed with, with work, especially as a driven person, as an entrepreneur or someone trying to get a company off the ground that you just like, you, you know, you, you, you lose that well-roundedness of just having friends. I think that yeah. your friends and your family are just, just so important to keep you mentally healthy. Uh, so trying to like not forget that and remembering that like I have a family and, and honestly the COVID is as bad as a lot of this stuff has been, it's really helped in that regards. I mean, I've, I've got to spend so much more time with my family and, you know, I mean, I think I mentioned I'd spend it, you know, so much time in New York last year away from my family. That's actually been really nice, but yeah, you know, secondly, and, and this has just been, you know, just kind of who I've been really my whole life. Uh, I, I, I invest a lot in my own physical fitness. You know, I, I, I make time to work out, you know, and I, I try to, you know, eat healthy and that stuff, not as good there, but, <laughs> but I am pretty good at, you know, making sure I carve out some time almost every day to, you know, whether it's, it's get on a bike, whether it's to do a workout, whether it's to go out on a run or, you know, even just to get a stretch, like something where I got to feel kind of good. Like my body's got to feel good. I'm a big believer in, in healthy body, healthy mind. And, um, you know, kind of those combination of those two give me the, the energy and the sanity and the well-roundedness to be able to put everything I put into the business side. Yeah, I think that's so important. Actually, I've have an exercise sports science degree undergrad, so I've always kind of, and being a former athlete myself, like always kind of thought of that fuels the, the mental side. I mean, you have to have that in some capacity, and it can be a lot of different things for people. You know, you don't have to be a runner. You can bike, you can lift weights, whatever. But finding something on the the physical side to kind of fuel your your mental side and keep you sane mentally, I think, is really important. Uh, and I think a lot of people I've interviewed on the show have have had that kind of same uh, thought process behind it. And then in terms of books I'm a, I'm a big reader i always love hearing suggestions anything whether it be personal or professional in terms of books that have been helpful for you along the way greg so, so many books um I, I especially early in my career yeah uh, just read so many business books um Sometimes you read them because you're learning something new really early in your career. You get that, uh, as you, as, as I've gotten older and a little bit more mature and I've just seen more, uh, now a lot of times they just spark ideas. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I've gotten to the point where I've moved from more like maybe like the, the, the how to's, which might've been a little bit earlier to, to a lot of, um, like, like biography type of books, like I'm <laughs> stories, um, uh, you know, like, the hard things about hard things. Um, the, uh, the, the Ben Horowitz book was just, yep. just such a great book in regards to like how challenging and like the, the things you got to do to be a successful CEO, but like Elon Musk, uh, you know, his book was really interesting. Uh, uh, the, the Steve jobs book. I just love these guys. They're just, you know, just the genius and, you know, their ability to take ideas and, and bring those ideas to fruition. I just find so inspiring and, I think you just learned so much about him. I mean, I just recently finished a book on um, uh, Winston Churchill and, you know, you wouldn't think of him as a, as a business person. Uh, but, you know, when you read the story and the story was centered around, you know, World War II when, when uh, England was just getting bombarded by the Germans and I mean, the Germans, you know, strategy was basically just to like bomb them in the smithereens until they would submit yeah. and, and, and they didn't. And, uh, his ability to keep the morale of the English people alive when they were facing such dire consequences. Like it's something that applies so well to, to being a founder when there's challenges and there's issues and, you know, things aren't always going well and you have to be able to kind of keep your team engaged and keep believing in the mission. So those are the kind of things I like and, and, and enjoy reading. Yeah, it seems like that's kind of the natural progression for entrepreneurs or people in business. You kind of start with more of those how-to books, some of the classics, which I think are really important to even kind of start the thinking and start the kind of the mindset around different even habits and everything else. And I found the same thing of really evolving into more biographies too. I mean, or just, you know, books around, you know, people specifically. I have a couple suggestions just pop out right now. The Tycoons, I don't know if you ever had read that one. Um it's about how Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, Jay Gould, and J.P. Morgan uh, kind of invented this like American super economy we have today. It's yep. pretty fascinating. And then even a book on Thomas Edison reading as well. Like just to, like learn more about the minds of these 
people who have done some pretty interesting things uh, just to give you ideas because there's so many ideas that come out of that. And even if you take you know one or two things out of it, I think it's I think it's worth it. And also, I'll give a plug for um, Holger Seam from um, from Blinkist to hit him on the show. Yeah. And you know, learning through Blinkist where you can kind of take these things and get the the top ideas from it is great. And same with um, uh, Warren from Knowable, another one that has this learning companies that al- allow you to learn, you know, from these quicker bites to these like, smaller things that can help you kind of learn more about business and and especially in our kind of crazy lifestyles we have now, it's it's helpful. Um, last kind of main question I have is just anything else you would tell other entrepreneurs, other aspiring entrepreneurs, just from your experience the last number of years, you know, kind of running companies, Greg. Oh man. Uh- you know, one of the things that uh, it took me a while, it took me longer to learn, <laughs> I, I think, and I have some scars for it is, you know, you know, in business school, right? Like we, it's all case study based, right? Like yeah. here, you know, let's sit down, let's look at a, let's look at a, a, a case, you know, this is the company, this is where they're growing, this is where they're struggling, you know, here's what the competition looks like all right, make some decisions. And you're like, all right, well, you know, we got to shut down this division here. We got to double down in this area here. We need to expand in this markets, right? Like that's, it's kind of what business schools are. <laughs> yeah. When I, when I, you know, really, you know, kind of came out of that and would start coming into these different companies with the idea of turning or turning them around and, and helping them grow or whatever it was, I almost approached it like a business school case, right? And it was like chess pieces and you kind of move the little chess pieces around and, um, and it was, I mean, I wouldn't say it was a failure, but like, man, I, I, I got a lot of scars and a lot of issues because what I forgot to take into account is the people behind all this Yeah, <laughs> and understanding that like, you're only going to be as strong as your people. And if your people don't believe in you and they don't trust you and they don't want to work for you, you could have the greatest ideas in the world, the most sound strategy. It can look unbelievable on a PowerPoint deck, but you're not going to be successful. So, um, you know, I think what, what I would say to any entrepreneur out there, anybody trying to build your company is, you know, it's more than a cliche. Your people are your absolute most important assets. They're, they're more than assets. Get to know your people, listen to your people, make sure that your people are the center of all your directions. They have their dreams. They have their aspirations. They want to grow their career. They want to be a part of a successful company and they want to be led but you need to really like tap into the human aspect of it and you need to create an environment that they, they feel great about and they're excited to be a part of. And, you know, I know you're, you're an ex-athlete, I'm an ex-athlete. It's, it's the same as, you know, the times that you've probably been on championship teams and the times that you've been on teams that haven't done so great, right? Yeah. It's like championship teams have that. We're all here together. We're on the same page. We're brothers in arms. We got a shared common goal and we're going to do everything that we can do to get there. And, and it's really trying to facilitate and try to build that. And it, it's easier said than done, uh, but never take that part for granted. Yeah. One, one quick follow up on that. I know you mentioned the, the case studies and everything in business school for you and your career. Why did you decide to go to business school in the first place? You know, when I, 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 started a company pretty early in my career, in my life and, you know, bootstrapped the thing. And I mean, you know, it, it was a, I didn't have, a, I honestly, truly early in my career, didn't have a lot of mentors. I didn't have a business background. I come from kind of a blue collar, you know, background and my dad and my dad ran small businesses and that type of thing. But like, you know, there was no guidance on how to scale an organization and how, you know, finance really worked and all those types of things. So, you know, for me, there was like a true mechanical side of it that I wanted to learn. Like I wanted to learn the rules of the game. You yeah. Know, I felt like I, you know, a lot of people I think go to business school, in my opinions, for, for some of the wrong reasons, right? They, they go because they think it's going to help them get some different job or, you know, move careers. And, and, and although there's some truth to that and, you know, my network has grown and I mean, you know, as a, as a, as a fellow Trojan, you know, we know, we know the, the power of the <laughs> Absolutely. And it's real. But, you know, I think what, what I got out of business school, you know, the most is just the rules of the game. 
and the mechanics and how to think through situations. And, you know, if I'm in a room with an analyst from a VC firm, I kind of understand what they're looking through at the model perspective, right? And I understand, you know, the understanding of bounding a market and sizing a market from marketing and, you know, all the little fundamental things that are just so important in your day-to-day life, you know, I'm able to pull on that, uh, that experience. So that, that was the big reason why I actually did it. Like I actually wanted to learn this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there, there, there's also the component of, uh, you know, having, having a, a, a pedigree behind you never hurts. Right. And, For sure. And that was, that, that definitely played into it as well. Yeah. And it definitely gives you a lot of options. I mean, just to have that pedigree of like an MBA from there, it's, it, it's super helpful on that side of things. And I think from some of the classmates I've talked to as well, my classmates at USC, um, it was that same type of thing of like, and just thinking about kind of the fundamentals of business and be able to have those conversations, especially if you, you were entrepreneurial and everything as well, but especially if you don't have a business background, uh, just getting some of those fundamentals so you can have the lingo and have the talk and understand and be able to be in those rooms and then lead those conversations and then be the leaders in those rooms. Uh, it starts with kind of that foundation, not that you have to have an MBA for that, but certainly helpful. Um, and I'm glad you kind of brought that up and, and where can people go to learn more about fancy invest in fancy and also connect with you if they would like to as well. Yeah, so we're, uh, I, as far as reaching out to me, I, I love just, anybody can reach out to me at any time. I check all my own emails. It's, you know, there's no EA or anybody that's kind of <laughs> So uh, I'm greg at fancy.com, like the easiest thing in the world. Perfect. Uh, and, you know, hit me up on LinkedIn or whatever it was. But, you know, our crowdfunding campaign actually closes. I'm not sure when this will be released. It's closing uh, the day before Halloween, October 30th. Uh, you can check us out at wefunder uh, forward slash fancy. Um, some awesome perks and, and, and things involved, but, you know, I think it's a really attractive um, investment at this point. I think there's a tremendous amount of upside and, you know, I mean, this is a company that was valued, you know, I think we raised capital close to a billion dollar valuation at one point. And, you know, I mean, I think there's a $12 million cap on our, 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 our note right now. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of room and a lot of area for us to, to grow and expand. And, you know, if there's people that are, that are interested, uh, you know, if they miss the window and want to reach out to me direct, you know, they can do that as well. Yeah. So definitely check it out. Wefunder.com slash fancy and fancy.com, which is just so simple. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Awesome, man. It was great speaking with you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you justgrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.